Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you. Heavenly Father, I pray for a special visitation of the Spirit. I pray that you would manifest yourself in a special way. I thank you for the encouragement found in the example of Paul going to these ladies, Paul and company, and giving them the message of eternal life and your movement in them. I pray especially that our ladies would be encouraged this afternoon. I pray that they would understand their value and their worth to you. And I pray that you would fill their hearts with gladness as a result of it and thanksgiving and praise to the God who is their Father forever. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, You may or may not know that Diabolos in Greek translated... As devil, in reference to the devil, literally means slanderer. And so as the name of Jesus demonstrates his nature as savior and deliverer per its meaning, the devil's name accomplishes the same for him, which in his case means identifying his most essential nature as that of a liar. And this most ancient liar lies about nothing and nobody more than Christ because he hates nothing and nobody more than Christ. And he does this in the present dispensation by slandering the Lord's church. In recognition of the fact that we are his body and he our head, and as every boxer knows, what you do to the body very much affects the head. So what Saul of Tarsus did not know beforehand prior to the confrontation on the Damascus Road, uh, Satan certainly does. And that is that to persecute the Lord's people is to persecute him. And for the devil, obviously, this is the point. But even though vehement hatred of Jesus is the true reason for his persecution of us, it is unsurprisingly not the reason that the great deceiver gives as he persecutes us. Typically, another justification is offered. And the given justification in this situation or that generally pertains to the need of the moment. So for the most part, what determines the lies that he tells are his purposes in a given era, which also, of course, animate his children in that same era. Now, I will say here, that we shouldn't deny as a potential impetus for his lies, simple, blind, satanic rage. It does happen. I do think, though, that as you look back through our history, it's pretty clear that for the most part, he generally approaches this matter from a utilitarian perspective. For example, say that you are the kind of emperor 
who might be inclined to stomp your own pregnant wife to death, even as she is pregnant and carrying your child. Well, if you were that sort of a fellow, you might also want to burn away ancient Rome or a large part of it in order to clear the way for a Rome that you could remake in your own image. But because that involves arson and that arson will cause the deaths of many of your citizens, you need a scapegoat. And Christ Church fit the bill very nicely for Nero in the first century because we were already considered to be a bizarre religious cult generally in the Roman Empire. We were accused of sedition and cannibalism, sedition because we would not call Caesar Lord but only Christ, and cannibalism because of a total misrepresentation of the Lord's Supper. So we were easy prey in that way. But you see with that example that the devil's deceptions are mostly purpose-driven. And the purpose behind them is usually very clear, and he and his servants are usually very well served by them. It should also, though, be recognized that sometimes Satan just uses the truth to disparage us. And an example of this is our view of women and the way that this was responded to in the first and second century. One of the reasons we were rejected as a burgeoning religion, especially by Jewish rabbis, was our high esteem of females and the role that they had played in our faith. They recognized that to make the first witnesses of a resurrected Jesus women was to elevate their status. And also the fact that the savior of the world comes through the womb of a 15-year-old girl, that elevated her status. Women generally through that. Then still other times, the plot thickens even further. And the truths that were represented truly enough in one era by the devil with the design of damaging us as Christ's church, are actually lied about in another era, but with the same design. And that brings us back again to the issue with women. The early church was, again, reviled for elevating women, and the church at present is reviled for supposedly discriminating against them. The feminists tell us that we demean women because we tell them that they should be more than cogs in a corporate machine and that they're Lives are better given to a man who is their husband who will love and protect them and provide them with a progeny and give them such minor graces as not dying alone, leaving nothing behind in this world. But Satan knows full well when it comes to our position on women that he was right the first time. No religion practiced by men has ever honored women as has Christianity, including those being practiced now like the paganism that is at present masquerading as science. The great champions of women in our day have now erased women as a category entirely through transgenderism. With, our respect, or with respect rather to our position on this, I want you to think first of the Imago Dei. It's not just Christianity that did this. It goes all the way back to the garden. Women were given the same image of God as men. They were of the same image-bearing kind. And so the idea that we have some distinction in value ontologically between men and women falls apart. In terms of being, we are equal before the Lord. We are of equal value to him. Doesn't mean that we are designed and intended for the same functions. Does mean, though, again, we have the same value, worth, and dignity. The Trinity is a good illustration of this. All three persons of the Trinity are God, all equally God. 
And yet in the economy of creation and redemption, they fill different roles, so it is with men and women. Distinctions and roles, though, are not a reflection of lesser or greater value or lesser or greater humanity. Consider also that Eve was the mother of creation. And yes, Adam was the father, but it's understood that, well, life does not happen without the union of our sexes. It does happen uniquely through women, and even more uniquely still through the first woman who was and is the great mother of our species. Consider also, again, Mary, mother of incarnate God. Think of the Proverbs 31 woman who shatters even 1950s American stereotypes. She is buying, she is selling real estate, certainly other things as well. Now she is under the headship of her husband, obviously, but she is of such excellent worth that she has been given great liberty. Deborah was an exceptional leader as well, and we often deal with her only in response to the egalitarians, and we're trying to explain why she doesn't then become an archetype for uh, all women, because the men there wouldn't step up, but you should just consider her in isolation. Just think in terms of the godly character that the Lord gave to her and the way that he used her. She is exceptional. And she should be recognized as such. Finally, I do think that it should be noted that despite the claims to the contrary, no institution has ever been such a hedge of protection or beneficial to women as is Christian marriage. When you do not have one man committing to one woman, you have a profound exploitation of women. This is true in every society that has ever done this, including this one. Whores on the internet are just as much whores as they were in every other era, and that is what ends up happening to ladies when you do not have that kind of lifelong personal commitment, as you do in Christian marriage. The reason, though, that I raise all of this is because Luke carries the same concept forth in our text, and beyond it, on into next week's sermon as well, we will see him elevate the status of women beyond anything that was happening in the then-modern Judaism, or in fact in any other religion, we will soon see that by Luke's accounting, the same Paul that we are told denigrates women by commanding that they submit to their husbands in the home and the male leadership in the church shows that women, in fact, have profound importance to him and ultimately to God. Indeed, God loves all of his daughters. All those that have become his daughters by faith and repentance, and he loves them with a love that cannot be measured. And of course, this is self-evident, isn't it? Given that the price of their adoption was the blood of his truest son. And God's love of women is very clearly seen in Acts 16. We saw this in a more subtle way a couple weeks ago. A lesson there, there was a passing reference to Timothy's mother being a believer. Last week, though, we started to see a very concerted effort by God to seek after women that are dear to him for the salvation of their souls. However, as I told you then, that was much more a consideration of the journey. Today, though, will be about the destination. And the destination is ladies at the end of that pursuit that the Lord has found. And in this, it would seem that Theophilus is being taught a lesson fundamental to Christianity of the same kind that was taught by Paul to the Galatians, Galatians 3, 28 through 29. 
There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. And we will learn this lesson there explicitly taught through Paul's example manifest in our text. And to this end, look with me again at Acts 16, starting in verse 13, which picks up in Philippi, which is in the territory of Macedonia, which from last week's sermon, if you recall, was where Paul was directed to via the vision. Verse 13, And on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer, and we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. Now the religious backdrop here is obviously Judaism. Ergo, amongst other clues, they are meeting on the Sabbath. In the next verse, we learn also that one of these ladies is a worshiper of God, which is nomenclature consistent with believing Jews elsewhere in Acts. And presumably, by the way, that's not exclusionary uh, with respect to the other ladies. Just true of her in particular, because she is more in view. When we get there, we'll see that. But it is clear that these ladies are as yet unconverted. Thus, they are Jews, but not Jewish Christians, like Cornelius, like the Ethiopian and others. They are responding well to the light that they have, but it is the light that they do not have that will illuminate their souls unto salvation. And that light is now being brought by four missionaries, if you're counting. We started with Paul and Silas back in chapter 15. And we picked up Timothy at the beginning of 16. And then the theys and uh, the thems became uses and wees. And that signified the inclusion of Luke. So one, two, three, four. But all of these men are led by Paul. And in Philippi, Paul continues the pattern of going to preach first to the house of Israel. He may be the apostle to the Gentiles. But if you've ever read Romans 9, then you know that his heart and his soul burns in a special way for his own people, so he follows that pattern. And the house of Israel, as we encounter them here, is a very small house, but small or not, they are still called a place of prayer. And Jews prayed together at very specific times. The most important of these was at the ninth hour, which is what we would call 3 p.m. Now, the place of prayer in Acts 3, if you remember, for Peter was the temple, because he was in Jerusalem, but for Jews of the diaspora, the dispersion spread across the world. The place of prayer would have been their local synagogue. That is where they would have gone. They still would have had to go to Jerusalem, to the temple at certain times of the year, to make special sacrifices um, for various different feasts and festivals. But the synagogue is their local church. It's the place they typically go. And that's where these ladies would have been, except they have no synagogue to go to. Again... On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. So this is an open-air establishment. They are meeting right there in the open, by the river, on the river bank. And the reason for this, I stated very briefly last week, if you recall, is because according to Jewish custom, if you do not have 10 Jewish men in a given locality, you are not permitted to have a synagogue by appearances. They don't actually have any men, so they are out of luck as far as that goes. They have no roof above their head, yet they are still faithful in meeting. And if you are wondering why 
The proximity to the water matters enough for Luke to mention. It is because, uh, consistent with Judaism, there are many water-cleansing rituals and rites, and so that gives them easy access to that. It makes sense practically. But now that you understand who they are, where they are, and why, understand also that in the appearing of Paul, they have been given a great and a rare gift which is not because of the fundamentals of what's occurring here. This is pretty ordinary. Commonly, when a rabbi from another place would visit a synagogue, he was granted his place at the Moses seat. He would teach for that week. That was a, a, a normal event. But to the rarity of this situation, first understand that not all rabbis were considered equal, and so not all would have been equally sought after as teachers. Rabbis did not have the same status one to another. And a man's status as a rabbi depended almost entirely upon whom he studied under. A word for this in our day is credentialism. It matters in certain circles, even at present, which school you went to. If you went to a community school, a community college like the one across the street, you had less clout than if you graduate from an Ivy League school. Hopefully that concept will die a horrible death, but it has not entirely yet. But in their day, you had a much stronger sense of this. Paul is in an elite category, having studied under the man considered to have been the greatest rabbi, and that is Gamaliel. And so somebody such as Paul, at least if he were not known now as a Christian, would have been given priority over any other living rabbi just about if he were to visit a local synagogue. I'll give you a hypothetical and kind of silly scenario to help drive this home. If you had 10 traveling rabbis, this isn't a bad joke, by the way. If you had 10 traveling rabbis that happened to show up at a given synagogue on exactly the same day, and Paul was one of them, almost certainly the other nine would have been sitting down and listening to him teach. So great is his clout and credibility. But knowing this, consider again but this isn't even a real synagogue. Again, they're in the open air. This is like religiously, ecclesiastically, nothing. And yet Paul, the understudy of the great Gamaliel, one of the greatest minds on earth handling scripture, period, has gone very far out of his way, obviously, to find them, not the other way around. How does he know that they're meeting where they're meeting? That's hardly intuitive. So he's probably asked around. Find out if there's any Jewish presence in the city anywhere at all. Maybe he utilized Luke in this endeavor, given that Luke is not only a medical doctor, but as the author of this book, obviously has a talent for investigative journalism. One way or another, though, they found him. Further, consider all of this in light of the common Jewish perspective on women. Uh, Robert Godfrey, if you were here for CE Hour, you heard him say that they would pray and thank God uh, post the ministry of Jesus that they were not Nazarenes as a dig against Christ. Well, they would also pray and thank the Lord that they were not women. They did not have a high view of women. Women were not to be taught independently. To drive this point home, here's a reminder, not from the Pharisees, but from the disciples. Immediately following Christ's conversion, conversation rather, with the woman of the well that led to her conversion, 
John 4, 27, at this point, his disciples came and they were amazed that he'd been speaking with a woman, yet no one said, what do you seek or why do you speak with her? They were thinking it. They just didn't have the courage to say it. Perhaps though they did have a side conversation and John sort of nudged Peter and said, is this a thing? We're doing this now. We're talking to the ladies out in the open like this. What of our credibility? This is not done. It's done by Jesus, done here by the Apostle Paul. Oh, and by the way, since we are on the subject of God's high esteeming of his image bearers of the female kind, the woman at the well then went on to incite the greatest revival in the Christian era pre-Pentecost. One of the greatest missionaries in the history of the faith was a woman and a woman of ill repute prior to her conversion anyhow. And similarly to Jesus orchestrating all the events of that day and prior to it to be at that particular place, at that well, at that specific time to collect that woman's soul specifically prior to this ministry opportunity. Two times the Holy Spirit said no to Paul's travel arrangements. And then he receives a vision, a man of Macedonia appears to him, directing him to where he is right now to lead a ladies' Bible study, so to speak. A little bit more than that, they would have prayed, they would have recited the Shema, the Lord our God is one. Uh, they would have read and discussed Mosaic law amongst themselves, perhaps sung from the Psalms, but you get the point. Oh, and to reveal their status further, the location of their gathering being outside of the city gate, according to verse 13, is probably an indication that they not only lack standing with the Jews, but also with the pagans. Rome was a very pluralistic society. You could pretty much worship whomever you wanted. But if you didn't have any credibility whatsoever, you weren't given a place inside of the city. You were relegated to being outside of the city walls if you were considered to be a fringe religious cult, which seems to be the idea here. However, being beloved of God, after the Lord starts to save them, they will not have to meet in the open air outside of the city any longer. They will have a meeting place as will other future converts from Macedonia. And a big part of the how of this is accomplished through a woman named Lydia. Continue with me in verse 14. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us saying, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Now there's much to unpack concerning Lydia and we must unpack all of this or else we won't understand the way that Luke intends for her to contribute to the greater narrative in this book. And much of this involves us gaining a better grasp on the culture of the day and the society in which she lived, and her role in that society. Now, Theophilus would have intuited a lot of this just from what is written surface level because he was a Greco-Roman. We are not, though, and we're a couple thousand years removed from their culture, so we're going to need some additional explanation here. I'm going to begin with the fact that she is very clearly a woman of significant means. If you thought of Lydia as a seamstress or something like that, you have thought wrong. The image here is something much closer to her being an owner of a textile manufacturing company. She is no rank and file employee. She is not stitching on the side in order to bring in a couple of extra bucks. 
She is a woman of note and noteworthy net worth. Based upon the use, first, of her first name, typically women were not identified in that way. Also, consider the fact that she, and notably not her husband, has a household, which includes servants, which are paid. Furthermore, she's not selling the ancient equivalent of polyester or even cotton. What she is selling is extremely telling of her economic status. And to illustrate this point, let me say to you that pretty well anybody in this room, and I think anybody, could start a t-shirt business tomorrow. You go on Amazon, you can get a custom-made t-shirt, you can put your own design, your own message on it. I think you'd pay like six, eight bucks. Okay, and then you could mark them up to 20, 30 bucks. Anybody has access to that kind of a business. Most of us do not have access to the kind of a business that would specialize in, say, Italian leather or the highest-end Egyptian cotton or something like that. That would require a tremendous amount of capital ahead of time in order for you to be able to purchase the materials. And then you'd have to find the people that you would distribute to, which would be much more difficult than the t-shirts too, because you're into much more narrow clientele. That's her situation. She had that capital ahead of time in order to be able to get into that business in the first place. Purple dye was prohibitively expensive as a commodity. In ancient times, and this remained true, I think, up until about the 19th century, but this was derived from a certain kind of shellfish or a rare root, but in either way, it was very expensive. It was labor-intensive to extract it. So this woman is in a very niche industry indeed, but in this niche industry, you might say that she's a captain of industry operating independently. And as to how she attained such a position, well, Lydia is religiously Jewish, but as indicated by her name, she is ethnically Greek, and as indicated by her status, she is nationally Roman, which is to say that she is a full-fledged citizen, which in Rome uh, was not actually the normal way of it. Most of the people were slaves. She is not. So many of the rules that applied to Jewish women of the time who were not slaves but were non-citizens did not apply to her. Under Roman law, freeborn women were permitted to engage independently in commerce, being able to transact legally without a male signatory or co-signatory. She didn't need anybody to secure business loans and to engage uh, with clients and contracts. She could do that on her own, and she was doing it on her own. Now, speaking beyond business and wealth in terms of family, again, Lydia has a household. Ostensibly, that not only means servants, it means children. Combine that with the fact that she has great wealth and circumstances would seem to indicate that she had a husband at a previous point, but no longer does. There are a couple of different possibilities, but I'll only give you the one that I consider to be the most likely, which is that she is now a widow who is successfully managing the assets that she acquired through marriage, or after marriage, when her husband's wealth transferred to her, or with wealth that she inherited from her parents prior to even being married. As is usually the case with wealth, it carries with its social status. And in fact, being a seller of purple is itself a commentary on her social status. Purple was not only prohibitively expensive to manufacture for people without great means, it was also prohibitively expensive to buy and therefore wear without great means. And this all means that she was very well connected through her business and perhaps besides it, 
to the most elite in her society, including the political elites, like everybody in the household of Caesar, who all would have been donning purple. Now, I want you to understand that Lydia is not here named and thus distinguished from the other women because she is of greater importance to God because of her wealth or social standing. Part of the reason why she is named specifically is because Luke is giving this uh, historical account to Theophilus. At all points when you go through this, when people are named, you should remember that Theophilus is able to go back and chart a course for himself. He can verify these facts. These are real people. It's not somebody somewhere said something. Lydia is a, a woman of note in that community. He may have known her or known of her, but he certainly, in any event, has the ability to go back and speak to people who did or her personally and verify the account that is being given. But she's also noted because God will use her elevated social and economic status to help his church and those in it who are not so fortunate as we will see later. Now, forgive me what I'm about to do. It's very unusual for me as a preacher, but I'd like to put a pause on the sermon for a moment for a bit of Bible trivia, which um, brings me back to when I was a little boy in church and in every single instance where this was done, I was utterly destroyed by the girls. But we'll see if you men can do better. I'm going to give you a warm-up question here, and then I'm going to give you the real money question. Okay? Warm-up question is this. Who was the first recorded convert to the whole continent of Africa in the book of Acts? Ethiopian eunuch. Very good, because it wasn't in Africa at the time he was converted. So that was something of a trick question, but you got it. And uh, the male uh, kind has been redeemed through Chris. Okay, so here's the real question. Who's the first convert in all of Europe? You're looking at her. This is Macedonia. First convert, continent of Europe, is a woman. And now let us begin to observe the fruit of her new faith. Again to verse 14. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. What were those things? Those things were the gospel. These ladies are sitting there and they are reading Mosaic Law. And let me just... You know, shooting from the hip, give you some ideas of what might Paul have said and how he might have approached this subject. He might have pointed out that Moses wrote in the third chapter of Genesis that a Messiah was coming. Might have reminded them that Moses said that a prophet like him was coming after him. And then he threads all of these various different needles, perhaps from Isaiah and other places right into singular point who is Christ and preaches to them Christ and tells them that Yeshua has come and he has come for them if they will turn to him in faith and repentance. Now as I, as I read her heart and heart specifically, I hear the voice of Charles Hodge in my ear, which I've never actually heard audibly but I've imbibed so much of what he has written that I have actually memorized much of his phrasing. And that's the case here. The heart is the center and seat of human will and emotion. 
That is what has been converted in Lydia. It says that her heart responded to the things spoken by Paul. That's what it means. Very center of her being. All that has changed here is all that she is. Now, people very commonly conflate what conversion unto salvation is with what it produces. This is a damning error. Okay, the product is critical because it demonstrates that conversion has actually happened. But conversion happens first and, and really and truly in the soul. That's what it is. And what happens on the outside is a reflection of what is happening on the inside. But if you forget about that, if you forget about the heart being changed, being born again, being remade, having new uh, affections and new desires, and you skip ahead to the product, then what you have is a Pharisee, a cup that's filthy on the inside, but clean on the inside. However, if a heart is changed, then of course the behavior that flows from it is changed as well. We're not legalists, but we're also not Gnostics. We recognize that if it happens spiritually, it manifests corporeally. In other words, if you really meet God, your face may not shine afterwards, but your life will, and brother and sister does her life shine. And we'll start to see that in verse 15. When she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Now, there are a couple issues to understand in order to be able to grasp what's really happening here. And at first, I think you already know, and that is that hospitality in the ancient world was a much bigger deal than it is now. I'll use another negative example here from the life and testimony of the disciples, this time the sons of thunder. Do you remember that situation with the Samaritans where they were not permitted to stay in the city? They were denied hospitality. Do you remember James and John's request? Can we rain down fire and brimstone and kill everybody? Jesus? No. No, Son of Man came to save that which is lost, not to genocide them. So we'll just move on to a different city. But that gives you an idea. You did not do this. You did not deny hospitality. You did not withhold it. If it was not given, it would have been a profound affront to you. That I think you knew, though. And if you didn't, there's a reminder. But the second issue is specific to this situation. Not exclusive to this situation, but specific to it. And that is that inns were not ideal places for Christians to, to stay in the first century. And that would have been the other option. That's probably where they are staying. Okay, these places were uh, full of crime and criminals, and many of them were little more than brothels. So Lydia does not want them staying in a place like this, and she prevails upon them According to the text, one lady against four men and she wins. Now, what does it mean to prevail against them? Well, in order to understand this, I don't think you need to know Greek. I think you need to have just had a mom. And you've been prevailed over in exactly this way numerous times. You attempt to run out of the door no shoes on your feet, nothing in your stomach, and you find out 
that your father may be the head of the household, but your mother's the lady of the manor, and you'll sit your rear end down and you'll eat the food that you were given. Uh, something of what happens here. I think that indicates a back and forth. No, we're okay. No, you're not. Oh, no, really, we are? No, you're not. <laughs> sit down. And by the way, when women do this, they're manifesting the image of God to a degree that only they can. Okay, God does this. He does this in creation. You experience that every time you walk out of the door. God is not merely practical. You encounter beauty because he has put beauty there. And so many details in creation demonstrate his presence to you. That's what your wife is doing when she is setting the table, when she's putting the centerpiece there, when she's decorating for Christmas. And as an aside, that isn't much to the side. Let me say, men, you must be very careful not to invalidate this aspect of your wife's nature because it runs counter to your own nature because you are much more of a practical being. This is how she is serving the Lord if she is a Christian woman. Okay, It is how she is reflecting the nature of the God who created her if she's a woman in general. But if she's a Christian woman, she's doing this in service unto the Lord. The greatest example of this in my life came to me from a woman named Ingrid, who um, was a part of a missionary couple that invited us to Taiwan. They provided everything for us to be there. If you know anything about me, I have a real hard time receiving things from people. And this was very humbling. And I just, I kept saying, thank you, thank you, gratuitously. But in addition to all that she did for us, she also provided us with this little tin. This was the most meaningful thing that she did the whole time. She gave us this tin. It couldn't have been bigger than that. Okay, but it was absolutely stuffed full of little food items that were packaged and sealed from Taiwan that uh, had some bearing to the culture and revealed something about the culture. And I knew what all of that signified because with each little item, there was a handwritten note telling us. Even a little handwritten note on... Uh, one particular item, which was something that they ate in Canada, because that was originally where they were from. That's what this is. And that, you can say, well, what is that? I mean, it's, it's little food items that are packaged, and it's notes. It was love. And I knew how great her love for us was, because she did that. And my wife is nodding. Both of us were floored by that that she took the time to write all of those little notes, how sweet that was. And Lydia is manifesting that in our text. And now, generally, hospitality is a good thing, as it's practiced by ladies. But Christian hospitality is one of the best things because it facilitates Christian ministry. One of the reasons why this matters so much. People are mind, body, and soul. If you're going to preach to 5,000 people, great, you fed their souls, but you're going to have to actually feed their bellies because they are biological entities as well. The two things are connected. You have to minister to them in both of those ways. More to the point here, if you're going to have preachers, you have to feed and care for them. In order for them to feed the flock, they have to be fed as well. And that is what Lydia is doing here. 
They have cared for her soul. So when it comes to the matter of whether or not this lady of great means is going to be permitted to use those means to their benefit, she's not taking no for an answer. Another reason why this is true is because her being hospitable is the fruit of her conversion, which is not to be despised or rejected by them. And in fact, Lydia herself recognizes that her hospitality has resulted from the Holy Spirit indwelling her. She has changed. She understands it. And she understands what has wrought the change. And she believes that if they, dem that if they stay with her, it demonstrates that they do in fact regard her as a true believer, as a true sister in Christ. Verse 15 again. If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, meaning what? Meaning if you've judged my faith to be sincere, if you think that I'm actually a Christian, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. If you really believe that I am a Christian, well then, brothers, let me manifest my Christian virtue by ministering Christ to you in this way. And indeed, hospitality is a great Christian virtue placed into his people by the Holy Spirit. And on this, the apostles speak with one voice and not just the apostles. And I'll give you some of that now. Since uh, Paul is on the receiving end of this hospitality, we will start first by considering his perspective on the matter. Romans 12, 10 through 13, skimming. He says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love giving preference to one another in honor, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Here's Peter, though, 1 Peter 4, 9, be hospitable to one another without complaint. Back to Paul to clarify that this isn't just for the ladies. 1 Timothy 3, 2, an overseer. Then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, it's a qualification for ministers. Paul does acknowledge, though, that this is practiced in a special way by the ladies. 1 Timothy 5, 9 through 10, a widow is to be put on the list. This is a list of those uh, especially qualified for ministry. Only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works, and if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work. And Hebrews 13, 2, a passage I think you know well, says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. But the Bible is very clear that our hospitality is to be directed foremost by far to other believers. Galatians 6, 10. While we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially those who are of the household of faith. I'm peeking ahead to Acts 16, verse 40. You will see that Lydia did good to those of the household of faith far beyond what you have already seen. She did good to these by giving them a house to learn in and to practice their faith in. Let's start, though, back in verse 35 to give you some helpful context. Acts 16, 35. When day came, the chief magistrates sent their Policeman saying, release those men. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the chief magistrates have sent to release you. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they've beaten us in public without trial. Men who are Romans and have thrown us into prison. And now they're sending us away secretly. No, indeed. But let them come out themselves and bring us out. The policeman reported these words to the chief magistrates. They were afraid when they heard that they were Romans, and they came and appealed to them, 
And when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. And verse 40, they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. Now the brethren are already at Lydia's house. Why is that the case? Why are they already there? Well, they're there for the same reason that the saints were gathered at the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, when Peter escaped prison through the angel and appeared at their doorstep. The reason for that is because that's where the saints were meeting for church, and for prayer meeting, for meeting on the Christian Sabbath, the Lord's Day. Lydia's hospitality extended to all the saints in that her home was the meeting place of the then nascent church at Philippi, soon no doubt to become mature, as they would have elders appointed to them, sent to them. Now, God saved Lydia for her own sake, but he also very clearly saved her for the sake of the saints in order to use her to bless them through the means that God had given her before he, in fact, even gave her himself. And being that she was actually converted, she was very agreeable to give it all back to him. Whether she said this or not, the subtext and the back and forth with Paul over whether or not they would stay was, look, these are not my rooms. This is not my food. This isn't even my house. All of it belongs to the Lord. Let me use it to serve his servants. Let me use it to serve his people. And this is, by the way, the the way that the church is supported. You know that God God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. The thing about that, though, is that there's a human owner, too. Those heads of cattle, the hides, they have a brand put there by a man. So how does this wealth get transferred? Well, typically, he doesn't just take the cattle with its human owner's brand and then give it to his people. Sometimes he does. Well, the wicked is stored up for the righteous, and so he can do that. But typically he brands the heart of that human owner and then they, being one of his people, give it back to him through them as a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Nothing that we have in this life is ours. We are merely stewards. And stewards to this great end that we would build Christ's kingdom, whether it be material or spiritual, you are the proprietor of nothing. You are the steward of all things that you have been given. Paul and company were stewards of the mysteries of God. Lydia was a great steward of material means, and each of them gave to each other according to their means. In gratitude for the fact that Christ had given to all of them without measure. When God gives you himself, he gives you everything. And when you have everything... Being God, everything else becomes nothing. And you're very willing to give it. Now, I want to close here by making sure you understand something about hospitality okay? that, that isn't present in the text. I'm giving you the example of Lydia. Lydia was a, a woman of great means. Don't leave here thinking if you're not a person of great means, if you're not a lady of great means, you cannot be hospitable in this way. One of my favorite examples of hospitality. It doesn't come from my own life. It comes from the testimony of another man who was a preacher. And he once told me that growing up in his church, everybody would look forward to, I think it was Wednesday nights after church, the same couple, I believe it was his grandparents, would have a whole church over 
And I mean, you know, again, people got to eat, so they had to feed them something, but they were not people of great means at all. They were very poor. So everybody ate toast and peanut butter and had a great time and fellowshiped in the Lord. Okay, it doesn't require highfalutin people. Happen to have one who was used, who had a house full of many empty rooms and who had the ability to do that. But it's not about means. Okay, give what you have. I stayed with a couple in New Mexico one time. They were a riot. They were great. They were wonderful people, Spanish people. I remember one morning they fed me, and they, I mean, they, they fed me like you wouldn't believe. She, she prevailed upon me in the form of a giant, giant breakfast burrito. And um, I was not tolerating the spices that they were filling those things with terribly well. And I heard them laughing, and I heard Blanco, and I said, I do at least know what that one is, okay? <laughs> I know the white boy, and I can deduce from the rest of the context what you're laughing about. But they were great, okay? Just give to the Lord of what you have. And if you have great means, give them. If you have lesser means, give it. But all belongs to the Lord, and we're all just passing through. None of this passes beyond this life anyhow. And if you don't have Christ, and you cannot fathom how everything material could become expendable, then we call you to turn to him today so that you can understand the worth of that treasure buried in the field and why you would sell everything that you have in order to get it. Turn to him in faith and repentance with your heart, center and seat of your will and emotion the same way that Lydia did. Christ died for sinners. Turn to him, let him take the body of your sin and give you a new heart which has as its utmost desire the desire to give back in gratitude to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you for these things. We thank you for the testimony of this dear sister. And we thank you for new hearts. We thank you for new minds. And we thank you for new affections that manifest in this world in a very real and tangible way. We praise you and we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you.